This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Welcome to Listen In, a bite-sized bio podcast series allowing you to access the best of bite-sized bio webinars wherever you are. This is Amanda Welch, and today in the Bioscience Mastery Academy, we'll be talking about plagiarism. Today's presenter is Dr. Karen O'Hanlon-Court, the Editorial Manager at Bitesize Bio. So let's just dive straight into the presentation. Over to you, Karen. Hi, Amanda. Thanks for the introduction. Uh, hello to you all, and welcome to the first lecture in the Bioscience Mastery Academy and the first lecture in the Ethical Research Practice module. So today I'm going to talk to you about plagiarism, what it is and how to avoid it. Okay, so just to give you a lecture outline for what we will cover today, uh, we will cover uh, what we can in about 45 minutes. So I'll start off with some definitions of plagiarism, take you through um, some of the statistics and facts surrounding plagiarism. We'll go through a couple of different types of plagiarism, including intentional and unintentional plagiarism, as well as self-plagiarism. We'll go through some common examples, both theoretical and real life examples of plagiarism. And then when we've all that done, I will try to give you a clear strategy that you can use to avoid plagiarism. This will include some online plagiarism checkers that you can use to search your work against other available texts online. And towards the end of the lecture, I hope to take you towards a discussion about what we as the scientific community can actually do about plagiarism. So it's quite a broad topic. It's not possible to cover it extensively in the time that we have, but this is not the end. Um, hopefully this will stimulate some really interesting discussions going forward in forums. But hopefully at the end of today, you will feel as though you have learned what plagiarism is and what it's not. You will have gotten some useful and free plagiarism checkers that you can use going forward and a clear plan as to how you can ensure that you avoid plagiarism in your work. So before we go further, let's have a look at what plagiarism actually is. So there's hundreds of definitions available in dictionaries and all over the internet. They're all more or less saying the same thing. So I just went with three, um, two very reputable sources and then Wikipedia, which is also quite reputable some of the time. Um, just to give you an overview of the different definitions of plagiarism, and um, I've highlighted some of the keywords in them. So first of all, the Merriam-Webster online dictionary say that plagiarism is to steal and pass off the ideas or words of another as one's own, to use another's production without crediting the source, to commit literary theft, to present as new and original an idea or product derived from an existing source. Oxford University in the UK, in their online statement for students, they say that plagiarism is presenting someone else's work or ideas as your own, with or without their consent, by incorporating it into your work without full acknowledgement. All published and unpublished material, whether in manuscript, printed or electronic form, is covered under this definition. And finally, Wikipedia say that plagiarism is the practice of taking someone else's work or ideas and passing them off as one's own. So what you can see here is that all of the definitions talk about taking the ideas or words of another and passing them off as your own, not giving credit. And you'll notice here, and since it is a lecture about plagiarism, I will draw your attention to the fact that I've used quotation marks around the definitions. And this is to highlight the fact that these are word for word um, definitions. So I have taken them word for word from the source. So in this case, I need to use direct uh, quotation marks. So now I've told you um, 
very broadly what plagiarism is. And I think most people realize that plagiarism is a negative thing. It's something that we get told as students not to do. There's going to be repercussions. But I think a lot of people don't really think about plagiarism as stealing or as a form of misconduct or as a form of academic fraud or cheating. And all of these negative connotations sort of add to the severity of plagiarism. And I hope that it's not to scare you, but that going forward that you would sort of, you don't already think about plagiarism in this way, that you begin to think about plagiarism in this way, both in your own work and in the work of others. So when you're actually reading other, other manuscripts and other theses and documents and, and what have you online or elsewhere, that you would become more aware of the fact that if somebody's actually carrying out plagiarism, they're carrying out misconduct. And um, we have several responsibilities to address that, which we will get to towards the end of the lecture. So we're all scientists, I presume, but plagiarism is not just restricted to the scientific disciplines. It's actually happening in all types of disciplines and all types of industries around the world. And I'll now just draw on an example from the music industry, which will show you that plagiarism is a very expensive mistake to make. So this will be about a two minute clip uh, where you'll hear some music and you may or may not know this story already. So let's cooperate for me. Again, if you go to this person's page on YouTube and you can read more about the case online. This is only one of many cases in the musical industry. But this case was settled out of court for an undisclosed sum. I'm getting it's a large sum. Vanilla Ice got a lot of disapproval from the public. And David Bowie and Queen received the songwriting credits. You can read more about that story in the Rolling Stone magazine. So not only is it a very uh, unethical and um, serious mistake to make, it's also an expensive one. So really, it should be straightforward, right? Plagiarism is, avoiding plagiarism is about not taking credit for the work of others. But apparently it's not so straightforward because there are reports of plagiarism everywhere. One UK publishing company called Taylor and Francis actually rejected a staggering 23% of their articles in one of their journals within six months of implementing plagiarism checker in three of their more than 200 journals. But these three journals had previous instances of plagiarism, so the average rate might be lower. So it's it's not necessarily a reflection on all journals, but it is in fact really difficult to get real statistics when a lot of journals don't routinely check for plagiarism. You can read more about that story in the Nature News article. Um, so going forward into the different types of plagiarism, so. 
there's generally uh, three categories of plagiarism that you can read about if you go searching. The first one is intentional plagiarism, and as the name may suggest, this is really an ethics issue. So this happens when you know that you're about to plagiarize, but you do it anyway. An example could be getting a friend to write your essay, buying a complete essay online. I was actually shocked to see that you can go on to a number of different websites and actually order an essay. And you can even order it after the grade. So if you want the highest grade, you pay a little bit more. Um, this is actually possible. I'm not recommending it. I'm just a bit shocked by it. Um, another example of intentional plagiarism would be just copying and pasting whole paragraphs from articles or a thesis that you find online and using them in your own work. Unintentional plagiarism is a little bit more tricky in the sense that, as the name suggests, it's often a matter of ignorance. It can easily happen if you're not clear on what plagiarism is. And I think this is an easy trap to fall into. And hence, this is one of the reasons why we're giving this lecture today. This can happen through careless paraphrasing, forgetting, or worse again, not knowing how to reference. And is it still wrong? Yes, it is just as wrong as intentional plagiarism from a scientific integrity point of view, but you can redeem yourself by learning what plagiarism is about and taking action in order to prevent it. The last, but by no means the least um, category, or the least important category of plagiarism is self-plagiarism. And this has got to do with plagiarizing your own work. And this actually comes as a surprise to many people that it's even a thing that can happen. And it came as a surprise to me as a graduate student. It's not because I attempted to do it. It just came up one day in conversation with a postdoc. I was really surprised to hear that if you, let's say as a PhD student, publish an article about your work, continue working in the same lab for a postdoc, and a few years later want to publish another article, chances are the introductory material will be similar for the new article. You cannot actually take parts of your old article and put them into your new article word for word because that's plagiarizing. And if you do choose to reword or rephrase what you've written in the original article, included in the new article, you need to cite yourself because otherwise you're plagiarizing. And there are many reasons for this. I think one reason is because when you publish your work in a journal, it's actually the journal who owns the copyright to that work. Um, and it's a very easy trap to fall into. And as I said, it's one which many people are not aware of. In an ideal situation, I think people would become aware of what plagiarism is so that they can avoid it. And this ideal situation is, is something that's very hard to achieve, but it's something that we will sort of start to discuss towards the end of the lecture. And it's something that I hope that we will be able to discuss in more detail in the forums. So now I'll give you a couple of theoretical examples of plagiarism, or more than a couple, maybe about 10. You've already got a couple in the previous slide. Um, let's have a look at a few more. So the first one is using another person's work entirely and passing it off to your own. This is a complete ripoff and it's completely cheating. And I hope that this is um, not a surprise to anybody. <laughs> using whole sentences or paragraphs from published works similarly is plagiarism. Paraphrasing without giving credit is also plagiarism. So if you take sentences or paragraphs from a, from a previously published work, in fact, it doesn't even have to be previously published, you take some sentences and you put them into your own words. They may be your words, but they're not your ideas. So unless you give credit, you're also plagiarizing in those situations. Using your own previously published work or ideas without giving credit. So as I mentioned in the last slide, if you use your own previously published work or ideas, you need to cite them because otherwise you're guilty of self-plagiarism. The next example is combining bits and pieces from several sources. Um, sort of creating a mismatch, a new article or new dissertation or whatever the case may be. And I think this is something that's easy to do, especially if you're under time pressure or if you are assigned something as an undergraduate, which you're really not that interested in, or maybe you find it difficult to 
sort of find good information or find the time to, to do the work. So you might be tempted to just take bits and pieces from several sources and put it together and feel like it's yours, that you created it. But in fact, if you don't give reference or give citation to the original sources of those bits and pieces, it's plagiarizing. Providing false references, it's hard to believe that somebody would do this, but people actually provide references to things that don't even exist. And they also provide references to articles that have nothing to do with what they're presenting or writing about. And this, I guess, is to put editors and um, lecturers and teachers off the scent. It's completely plagiarizing. Claiming that another person's ideas are your own. Um, I'll give you an example here because I think otherwise, it's, well, maybe for me, uh, I need an example. I needed an example to fully understand what this was about when I was a student. So let's say you're working in a lab and you're investigating um, potential protein targets as new drug targets in some bacterial pathogen. And you've gone through 10 already and none of them have led you anywhere productive. And then you recall that, um, let's say it's a salmonella bacteria you're working in, and you recall that you've read a paper a few years ago where somebody was studying the same species and they identified um, some proteins that they claimed were likely to be essential for the growth of this bacterium. They weren't interested in developing drug targets, so it was a distinct project, but it was their idea that these proteins could be essential and they had some evidence to suggest this. But then you get the idea that you would like to test those proteins as potential drug targets. So you build a hypothesis that these proteins could be potential drug targets. You set up the experiments, you do the experiments and you analyze the data and write the paper and so on. So that part is your work, but your work is actually based on another person's idea. And you could be working on that project for years and by the time you get to the end, you may actually forget that it was another person's idea to begin with. So I think it's a good idea to take note of ideas that you get um, as you go along so that you can remember to give credit to the original person at the end. Copying experimental results, be it figures, images or tables from previous publications is also plagiarism. Um, you can refer to other people's results if you want to compare and contrast with your own results, but then you have to give uh, appropriate credit in the form of citation. But you cannot just take figures or images or tables from another person's publication in your own results section. Copying schematics or diagrams from publications, for example, some of the really elegant signaling pathways that you can find in review articles or some of the really nice immunological um, pathways with all the different receptors from review articles, they can be really, really nice and very difficult to, to recreate. But you cannot copy those from publications without securing permission. And citing the original article is not enough. You actually need to secure permission from the journal who published the article. We'll talk a little bit about that when we look at ways to avoid plagiarism. So in preparing this lecture, I also used some additional sources. One of the articles that I referred to was an article that was previously published in Bite Size Bio by one of our former editors, Dr. Laura Fulford. So the link is in the box below. And you are welcome to read this article where it sort of puts a little bit more meat on the bones of what's in my slides. So according to a source called turnitin.com, some of you may be aware of Turnitin. I'll describe them in a little bit more detail towards the end when I leave you with some um, additional sources that you can go to. But uh, Turnitin are an online resource um, that they provide support to mainly to universities and other third level institutions and second level institutions around the world with focus on plagiarism. 
and they conducted a survey with almost 900 higher and secondary educators worldwide and identified 10 distinct types of plagiarism. So many of the kinds of plagiarism I've shown you already sort of overlap with these to some extent. But I think this is very interesting because they give a digital identifier to each of the types. And I believe this is to signify the fact that many of these types of plagiarism are only possible because of the digital world that we live in. So we have the Internet. And the Internet, of course, makes it much easier to plagiarize because we can easily copy and paste. I'm not going to go through them all in detail. It's something that I recommend you have a look at later if you're interested. But I'll just draw your attention to three most frequent types of plagiarism observed. And these are the ones with the red star. So the first one is clone. So the clone sort of corresponds to just copying and pasting another person's work word for word. So taking an entire document. The control C is where you, again, copy. You have significant portions of text from one single source without any alterations at all. It's, I mean, to me, it's as bad as cloning. And then the third most common one is the mashup. And this is where you mix. You have a mix of copied material from multiple sources. And um, this is similar to what I said about copying bits and pieces together. So these three were really, really common. Um, I will actually just mention one other while we're here, um, because this sort of, it, I wouldn't say it came as a surprise to me, but it was something that I hadn't really thought about as a type of plagiarism. Uh, so it's the aggregator, it's the second last one on the right hand side. So this is a document where you've actually done, done all the citation correctly to sources that exist, but the paper contains almost no original work. So for example, let's say you're doing a literature review that you tried to publish in a, in a journal, or you've described, let's say it's on the innate immune system, and you've given an overview of all the big research papers in the last five years, cited them all perfectly, but the paper doesn't contain any original ideas, any new aspects, any new ways of looking at it, or any new interpretations. So you could say the work that you've described is valid, properly cited, but there's no originality in the paper. So that is actually also um, perceived as a form of plagiarism. So that's something to look out for as well. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To access the visuals of this webinar, please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Now I'll take you to a few real-life examples of plagiarism. Uh, unfortunately, these are only a few of the many thousands that are actually available on the internet. Um, these have been taken from a source called retractionwatch.com, sort of a watchdog for the retraction of papers, not just within the sciences, but mainly within the biological sciences because the founders have their expertise in this area. I'll talk a little bit more about Retraction Watch at the end of the talk. So without going through all of the, the clips here, I'll just sort of read the, the heading and sort of pick out what I believe to be the keywords. Um, so in this one, the title is Yikes, Peer Reviewer Stole and Published Authors Data. So um, anyone who is familiar with the publication process will probably straight away um, know what has gone on here. If you're not familiar with the publication process, don't worry because it's something that will be covered in one of the later lectures in the Academy. So what has really happened here is that a group of researchers have actually published an article containing information that would only have been available during the peer review process of another paper. I mean, that kind of indicates that one of the authors in the paper of the paper actually was some kind of a reviewer and basically stole the information. So this paper was obviously retracted and this happened earlier this year. Here's another one. Uh, journals pull two papers after a blogger shares plagiarism suspicions. So bear in mind that there are some bloggers on the internet who, you know, they feel passionately about this topic and they feel passionately about protecting the integrity of research. So they're actually keeping an eye on stuff like this. 
So this uh, blogger called Neuroskeptic actually copped that there were two papers that had copied text from other sources and he reported them, they were investigated and um, these papers were attracted. And in the last line of this clip, um, the blogger actually says that in the course of a few months last year, he actually discovered, well, I think it's he, he discovered about 30 cases of plagiarism review papers. So he's got a really interesting blog online as well, if you want to, he or she, a really interesting blog online if you're interested in following that. Here's another one, journal cleans the house by retracting six cancer papers for plagiarism. So this is one journal, six cancer papers, all plagiarized from other sources. And the journal believes that the peer review process has gone wrong. This could be simply because the peer review process didn't actually catch the plagiarism. I often read these stories in, in extreme detail, I must admit. But you can by checking that on Retraction Watch. This is interesting, this is a case of self-plagiarism. So a physicist was accused of repeated self-plagiarism and this resulted in him clocking up two retractions. So he was actually accused of multiple acts of self-plagiarism by his own colleagues. And you will see in the second red box, for the most part, the work had actually appeared in another paper. Frighteningly, I would say that this person was actually promoted in May, despite all of this going on. So that's, um, that leaves you wondering what are the consequences in the scientific industry, in the scientific research. I don't even want to call it an industry, but within scientific research, it leaves you a little bit worried about the consequences of plagiarism. Here's another case of self-plagiarism. So a drug researcher has up to 10 retractions. So again, this makes me worry about the consequences of plagiarism. If one person can actually clock up 10 retractions, how did it even get that far? Duplicating his previous work all the time, failing to cite the previous work. So this is very worrying. And this was involving multiple journal over multiple journals over several years. So this makes me wonder how good the watchdog situation is working, um, not on the behalf of retraction watch, but just on behalf of journals. Another case of self-plagiarism, this time involving the duplication of an image. So a paper with a duplicated image was claimed by the authors was sequentially building on neuroscience work. So these authors actually used the same image in two papers, and the only obvious difference was a change in brightness. So later in this module, we'll have a lecture about image manipulation. So you'll hear sort of more about, you know, where to draw the line on image manipulation, what's okay and what's not okay. But um, yeah, the authors tried to defend their actions, but this didn't really work out too good for them. So that paper was retracted. So now I've told you a lot about what plagiarism is, at least I hope you feel that you've learned something about what plagiarism is, and this will probably already help you to make a plan to avoid it. But anyway, we'll just give you some good tips. These are tips that I have. Um, some of them I've been inspired from Laura's article. Some of them are things that I do myself and just things that I have sort of collected to make it into a guide. The first one would be very straightforward. Don't copy whole texts and pretend that they're your own. It's actually a very easy one to do. Um, write down keywords from your references and use these alone to rewrite the parts. So here, instead of paraphrasing or instead of trying to put something in, sort of reword what somebody else has said, just pull out the keywords from what it is you want to say and just use the keywords by themselves and then cite that, cite that too, because again, they're your words, but they're not your ideas. This is also a good exercise because it kind of helps you to figure out how, how well you understand what it is you want to write. That's a different topic. If you really must paraphrase, make sure to cite the original source anyway. Uh, when it comes to diagrams, so like the signaling type of diagrams I was talking about earlier, redraw the diagrams from scratch but also cite the factual information. So if those diagrams contain things, and they most likely will, 
contain things that have um, that are the result of research efforts and published research efforts, make sure that you cite those sources. If you must use a published diagram, secure permission to use it from the copyright holder. This is, in most cases, the journal publication house. Remember to reference the original source, clarify that it is indeed a reproduction, even if you made alterations to the diagram. I would say reference everything. If you describe an idea or a process, for example, a protocol or method, you need to acknowledge the person that invented it. Sometimes you're, you have something that's so basic, um, well, you feel it's basic and you can't find the original paper that actually made that claim or described that, that technique. And it's okay to cite textbooks too. So just remember that cite textbooks are also a resource that you can use to cite. Don't rely on a few references. This is something that I have learned. Um, as an undergraduate student, I remember having a dissertation one time about the innate immune system of insects, and I found it really difficult. Um, it got easier when I got more and more references because then I read more, my understanding got better, and I also felt it gave me a greater vocabulary to actually um, write about what it was I wanted to write about. Because relying on a few references, in my opinion, limits the diversity in phrasing can actually trap you into getting overly familiar with one way of writing something. So that would be my advice there. I have more tips. Some of these are perhaps a little bit outside the box, but um, how about writing by hand? It's very old school, but it certainly reduces the temptation, if, if, if not make it impossible to copy and paste. Cite yourself if necessary. So sometimes people think self-citation is the bad thing and it's something that you do to sort of amplify your your citations but if you actually invented or discovered something and published the work you actually need to reference your previous publication so that people can go back and find the original technique if they want to use it another idea and i would say this is especially good when you're starting out in research and writing is to get a peer to read the draft of your work um, and underline everything that they think should be referenced so for example there's certain things that are, or they might be common knowledge. Well, you may feel they're common knowledge, but they might not be common knowledge to another biologist. If that's the case, that needs to be cited. So you could, um, you and a peer could actually help each other out in this regard. And again, I would say check the referencing requirements, what's actually expected of you. This probably applies a little bit more to graded assignments in universities. So different universities and sometimes even at faculty level have different referencing requirements. So just make sure that whatever you're doing is actually right, because otherwise you could be um, guilty of plagiarism unintentionally. To really put your mind at ease, I would suggest running your work through an online plagiarism checker before you submit it. And something that I have tried to do, and it's not because I, I'm afraid that I'm going to plagiarize, but it's, it's actually something that can happen really easily is that I try to avoid plagiarism on an ongoing basis. So I incorporate it as a part of my workflow, just like I incorporate using the right controls and um, keeping my lab book up to date and so on. So for example, I would note useful references immediately so that I have them later on. This might sound very simple, but it's not just references about the topic that you're working with. Also, if you find a reference that describe a technique that you may or may not do in the future. Just keep it. And if you're using referencing software, it's very easy just to drop these into uh, the right folders so that you can easily find them later on. Because when you work in the lab, as many of you know, for most for many years, by the time you're ready to submit, sometimes you really forget where you got a protocol from. It's very difficult to find it later on. If you are not very familiar with referencing softwares, don't worry, because it's something that we will actually look at in the academy later on. In the end, if you're in doubt at all, just reference 
better to have one too many and one too few. So avoiding plagiarism is all about giving credit and citing others' work. And some people are a little bit in doubt about when to actually cite and when not. And this is something that I would like to talk a little bit about now. So I would say cite when you refer to original ideas or findings that have been published elsewhere. Cite when you paraphrase findings, theories, hypotheses published elsewhere. Always cite when you present facts that are not common knowledge. Use a direct quotation mark, excuse me, if you use a direct quote, cite, but also use quotation marks as I did in one of my first slides. When you describe a method that has been used before by you or by others, even if you make modifications, cite and also list what the modifications are so that the next person can actually reproduce the work. Luckily, there are some situations where you don't need to cite. When you're describing personal experiences and opinions, personal experiences doesn't, it's not something that we really talk about a lot in science, but opinions is something and, and your conclusion and your interpretation of the data. If you're taking a new um, spin on something and you have a new interpretation of something in the field, you don't need to cite that. Um, but of course, if you're comparing yours to somebody else's, then of course you need to cite theirs. When you're presenting original and novel research data, so often in the results section of your thesis or in a research article, you won't have citations. At least you won't have as many as you would have elsewhere. When you make a statement that is common knowledge, for example, the immune system is comprised of innate and adaptive immunity. I don't think you need to put a citation in there. But sometimes, as we said uh, in the last slide, it can be difficult to know when something is common knowledge or not. And if you're not sure, just add in a citation anyway. I will give a very brief overview on how to cite scientific articles. I won't discuss how to cite for books or for essays or anything like that. It's a little bit beyond the scope of today's lecture. But when writing in manuscripts, and also bear in mind that the format for citation is also target journal dependent. So this is just an example. But always when you're citing, um, when you're writing a scientific article and you're citing, you will always have an inline citation at the end of a sentence before the full stop, and you'll have a citation in the reference list at the end of the manuscript. So let's have a look at the inline citation. So an example could be, in previous studies, disruption of, this is Aspergillus fumigatus PES-3, resulted in a hypervirulent phenotype in insect and urine models of infection, O'Hanlon et al, 2011. So that's one of my PhD papers. So there will be the citation at the end of the sentence, and that will also occur in the reference list at the end of the manuscript. Here, for this particular um, journal, all of the author names were listed in full. For some journals, not all of the author names are listed in full. So this is something that you need to check. And this is um, something that will depend on what journal you're aiming to send your work into. When there are only one or two authors in something that you want to cite, follow the same format as above, again, depending on the target journal. But instead of the et al, list the surnames of the authors. So for example, Hanlon and Wells, 2013, or O'Hanlon, 2014. For graded assignments in universities, always check with your faculty for the required format because this is this is too variable to, to cover really here. There are a few free plagiarism checkers. In fact, there are many free plagiarism checkers. There are also plagiarism checkers that you can pay for. Um, so I'm not going to go through all of the ones that I have on the slides here, but it was just to give you some of the ones that I've tried in the past. Um, even if I've only tried them once, um, you might find that one one works better than the other for you. So I use the first one. It's Small SEO Tools Plagiarism Checker. And this only gives five free checks daily. That's usually enough for me. 
and each check has a limit of 1,000 words. So what you do here is you paste your document just into a box and you just have to click a box and say that I am not a robot. Um, and you hit search and what it will do is it will search your document, your text against all texts available on the internet and it will give you back a percentage score and the percentage refers to the amount of similarity between your text and other texts on the internet. Things like um, if you're a protein scientist, you probably do a lot of SDS page. So if you spell out the full sodium diesel sulfate polyacrylamide gel electrophoresis, that's a very common term. Don't be surprised if it pops up as plagiarism. This is not really plagiarism. So you do have to be a little bit um, subjective and use your own discretion when you go through the results list. So the good thing about these checkers is that many of them they don't just give you a percentage, but they actually give you um, a link to all of the things that have been flagged. So you can go through them yourself and you can decide. Um, there's not much else to say about that, except some of the checkers also offer a grammar check, so you might find this useful. I haven't actually used Google Scholar's plagiarism checker, but I'm thinking now that maybe I should because it's a little bit more technical in nature and it's operating in over 190 languages. So you just paste or upload your text and it actually checks against articles, patents, legal opinions and journals. So perhaps it actually excludes blogs and, and other things. I'm not sure. It could be worth checking out. However you do it or whichever one you use, just bear one thing in mind. These checkers can actually only check your work against content that is already online. So it's not going to be able to find things in books that are not available on the internet. So I'm sort of taking a slightly different direction now, sort of to lead into a discussion about what we as a scientific community can do, because clearly there is a problem with plagiarism. Otherwise, we wouldn't have retraction watch. We wouldn't have, I forgot to say, but I actually looked in PubMed to see how many articles there was about plagiarism. And if I just typed plagiarism into the search bar, I got 1,500 articles. And this number is actually growing month to month. So it's quite an active research focus. Many of the articles were surveys. And um, surprisingly enough, there were a lot of surveys where researchers had actually been asked if they were plagiarizing and a very worrying number of researchers actually openly admitted to plagiarizing, knowing that they were doing so. Those people might be difficult to catch <laughs> because um, that's obviously an act of intentional plagiarism. But perhaps if the consequences were a little bit more severe, they might be deterred from doing it. So. I've given away some of what I was already going to say, but where is it going wrong? Because we have plagiarism checkers. The definition is fairly straightforward and it does appear to be an active research focus. Well, where I really believe it's going wrong is that there's a lack of information in education. Yes, there's information out there on the internet and on the home pages of probably most universities in the world. But plagiarism doesn't make an appearance in the curriculum. So I had almost eight years in university and I can honestly say I never once had a class about plagiarism. Yes, we were told not to plagiarize. We were never told how not to plagiarize. We were not even um, taught what plagiarism actually entailed. And I know from speaking to the other organizers of the academy and also many of my research friends and colleagues, people who've been in university for 10 plus years have never been taught plagiarism. This is people from all over the world. I think this is a really big issue. The result of this is that people don't know what plagiarism is. I would also say that the consequences of plagiarizing are actually rather uncertain. And the reason I say this is because if you remember back to the real life examples I told you about, there are people who've actually been caught plagiarizing 10 times over a span of several years. So for me, that suggests that there's no real consequences in some cases. 
there's no dedicated plagiarism database. There is Retraction Watch, which I'll tell you a little bit more about at the end, but they cannot do everything. So they're, they're working on building a database about plagiarism. But right now, to the best of my knowledge, there is no plagiarism database. So if you want to go and work in somebody's lab, it would be nice for you if you're actually able to go and look them up on some kind of database to see if they actually previously been indicted of plagiarism. And likewise, if you've come a group leader one day and you want to hire somebody, it would also be nice if you could check up and see if they're guilty of plagiarism. So I think this would sort of make people a little bit more afraid in some way because it would be a naming and shaming kind of thing. The internet and custom writing services make it easier than ever before to plagiarize. And this is not just my opinion. This is an opinion that is um, that is shared widespread. So these are the issues, at least some of the issues. Um, I would like to have been able to present you with more statistics. But the truth is, it's very difficult to find any hardcore statistics. And I couldn't really find anything this current time that I was happy enough to present. So I took a slightly different approach. I contacted journal editors. I actually contacted Retraction Watch. I'm probably going to contact Turnitin. And I've also contacted a number of universities around the world with a series of questions. Um, and I'm awaiting answers from the most of them. And uh, the questions I've asked them is, is plagiarizing increasing or decreasing in prevalence? How many cases approximately per year per student or per published article do you see? What kind of plagiarism is most frequently encountered? What monitoring or detection system is in place? And what flagging system is any, if any, is in place to catch repeat offenders? And I've got two answers so far. These are direct quotes. These are what the people have said, but I'm not going to name who they are. First person is a former editor of journal, and they say that they did not have a formal process in place for checking for plagiarism. In my time, one to two years, we caught two instances of blatant plagiarism, once of which was caught by a reviewer and one that was caught by a reader after publication. How Awful. The person who was caught for plagiarism was banned from submitting anything to us again. But this was our own policy, nothing to do with the publisher. We received no guidance from the publisher on plagiarism. So it's not just universities that miss that are missing a plagiarism as part of their curriculum. It also seems as though teaching and guidelines on how to handle plagiarism are actually missing from the training of at least this editor in this publisher in this journal. Another journal editor told me that they publish over 2,000 articles a year. They do not routinely screen articles for text plagiarism, but they have measures in place to flag offenders. And this, I must say, this worries me because I got this information last week. They don't actually screen articles for text plagiarism. They wouldn't tell me how many cases of plagiarism they see a year. And that's, that's, I guess that's fair enough. When I get the remainder of the information, I'll put it together and I will send it out in some way on the forum so you can follow the results of this. Um, I guess it's a survey in some way. So I mentioned um, that plagiarism is lacking in the curriculum. Of course, I cannot say with hand on heart that it's not present in any curricula around the world. What I can tell you is that I have looked at around 50 different universities, both the high ranking, medium ranking universities on all the continents. And I am not really convinced that plagiarism is appearing in the curricula. I won't go through these examples in uh, detail. I will actually go through one. So there was one from an Irish university. And um, they actually say this. Yes, I should also say that I tried to restrict myself to the scientific faculties. So, of course, I cannot say that plagiarism is not appearing in the curricula for other disciplines. In this particular university in Ireland, I couldn't really find anything at all in the scientific faculty, but I did find something in one of their language faculties. 
And they say it is your responsibility to familiarise yourselves with guidelines for proper scholarly citation and to use them to avoid plagiarism. If you are not clear about the difference between scholarly citation, collaboration and paraphrase, consult your module instructors. And this really offended me, I must say. How can it be your responsibility as an undergraduate student on day one to familiarise yourself with something when there's no actual proper education out there to do so? So I think this is a big issue. It was one, uh, I did come across one university in Denmark who in the undergraduate biochemistry programme include a course about scientific theory and ethics in the final year. However, it's just before the bachelor thesis, but I think it's nice to see it and reassuring at the same time. My conclusion from my rather limited and not very, um, this is not statistical analysis in any way, this is just my sort of take, plagiarism and ethical research practice in general is poorly represented throughout the scientific curriculum. So, I mean, whose responsibility is it anyway? Well, I would say it's all of our responsibility. Anybody who has an interest in science is responsible for this. You and I have the responsibility not to plagiarise, but we also have responsibility to tip off or inform editors or indeed faculty members when we spot plagiarism in manuscripts or essays or what have you. We should also ensure that we approve everything in a manuscript with our name on it. So what I mean here is if you're actually involved in a manuscript with other people, um, and you only have a small part, you should make sure that you actually see that manuscript before it's submitted and check it. Because if there's plagiarism and it gets published and retracted, everyone's going down together, even though you didn't have a hand in it. Educators, I've already covered this. I believe it should be covered during undergrad and postgrad education. Everyone in the food chain has a role to play. Believe it or not, grad students are actually liable for bachelor students under their supervision. So if you're a grad student and you've got a bachelor student working on a few paragraphs for an article, it's up to you to make sure that they have not plagiarized because if it gets published and retracted, you'll be liable. And a case of plagiarism early, early on in your career can actually be very, very career destroying. As we see in the example earlier, plagiarism later in your career doesn't always necessarily lead to um, destruction of career, but I would say that you should definitely stay away from it because it would be very difficult to get a job if you're caught involved in plagiarising as a grad student. Journal editors have a huge role to play. Um, positively, a growing number of journals actually run incoming manuscripts through plagiarism software. The question is, do they have a universal system to block previous offenders? Previous offenders? I don't think so. And because it's a research ethics module, I wouldn't feel right if I didn't tell you why we should all care. So if you don't already know, we should all care in order to protect and maintain research integrity. We need to be able to trust what we read in scientific articles. How many times have you read an article and looked at data and thought to yourself, mm, I'm not sure, this just doesn't look right to me. That's not good enough. We need to be able to trust what we believe so that we can build on others' work. And this is also so that research has the best chance of leading to the new discoveries, inventions and cures and everything, why we all want to do research in the first place. We also need to do it to maximise our own learning, because when we cheat, we only fool ourselves in the long run. We actually cut ourselves out of the chance to learn, and we also ruin other people's chances to learn. And finally, just, you know, to be the good Samaritan, but really to be a good scientist, a good colleague and a good collaborator, because it's only right to credit others for their work and ideas. By referencing, you allow your readers to find the original work and protocols, increasing the impact of your own work and others. And you'll also gain the respect of others. And just remember, you should care, because it could be your work that's getting ripped off one day. I will leave you with some additional resources. So Retraction Watch is a watchdog for retraction of papers. It's not restricted to science, although it's predominantly biological sciences, and they cover plagiarism and other types of fraud. It's founded in 2010 
uh, by two people and it's now got sort of a, a panel of people working for them. And you can read about thousands of cases of research misconduct where they do name and shame the people. Turnitin, um, Turnitin called themselves the leading academic plagiarism checker technology for teachers and students. They have online plagiarism detection, grammar check and grading tools. And the 10 examples of plagiarism with the digital identifiers, you can read all about the full survey um, on their website, as well as getting a lot of additional resources about plagiarism. Many universities are actually using Turnitin as part of their standard um, assignment handling system. Um, so, and as a matter of fact, Turnitin say that within about four years of university implementing Turnitin, they actually see a marked reduction in plagiarism. So this is really good. The Committee on Publication Ethics was set up in the UK, um, but now it's got over 10,000 members worldwide. It's a forum for editors and publishers, so not, not really for researchers as such, although I think it's a really interesting resource. They give a lot of guidance and advice about publication ethics and misconduct. They don't make decisions on cases, but they do report on cases unnamed. But it's really interesting to go and read about certain things, and you learn an awful lot more about where the line is on certain issues surrounding plagiarism. And then the last resource is kind of a funny one. Um, I came across this when I was looking for ways to sort of show you how you would know when something was common knowledge or not. Um, it's only got a few examples. It's from Rutgers University. And it's got a series of statements. I think it's from Bugs Bunny. And it's a series of statements. And you have to decide whether something is, is common knowledge or whether it's likely to have been, founded, uh, have been found out by some kind of effort by somebody in that case it requires a uh, citation and i actually thought it was funny i did it myself and i actually found one of the questions a little bit tricky so if you have the time just check it out it only takes about five minutes that was it for now um i hope to hear from you again um in the forums or i will look forward to taking any questions or comments that you have and i really thank you all for your attention thanks karen that was an excellent presentation so in this lecture, we covered what plagiarism is and isn't in some useful and free, which is always a plus, plagiarism checkers, and how to ensure that you avoid plagiarism in your work. So now we'll turn it over to the audience for questions. We have a few already, but please feel free to post any questions that you have in the questions box that appears on the right of your screen. So we have a question about self-plagiarism. Yeah. Could you expand upon that a little bit more? Because it sounds, the question that Zay has is, how can you pass off your own work as your own work and have it still be plagiarism? Yeah, I, I mean, this one always catches people out and I must admit, it caught me out for a long time as well. Um, mm -hmm. I like to explain things by way of example. Um, I'll try to approach this question in two ways. So first of all, when you publish something in, a, in an article, uh, yeah, in a journal, sorry. When you publish mm -hmm. in a journal, the journal, they own the copyright to the work. So okay, that is one reason why you need to cite the work, especially if it's something like an image. It's not really yours anymore. So yeah, I can see what the what the person is asking about, but I'll, I'll, I'll actually just give a better example. So let's say for argument's sake, you're, um, this actually happened to me. So when I was a PhD student, I was involved well it was basically my phd project and by the time it came to any way completion i had already left not just the lab but the country and um it had been submitted and then it was sent back with reviews and we had to do a series of experiments not much but 
just something to sort of convince the, the reviewers, which was fine. And one of my former lab mates, she did the experiments, they turned out really nicely. And she is a co-author on the paper. So then let's say I continued on to do a postdoc and I worked in the same area. In this case, it was actually something about the fungal cell wall. So she ended up doing some experiments which were a little bit outside what my PhD started out to be about. Um, let's say I continued as a postdoc and I worked in the same area. I would maybe just be expected to repeat some of the same kind of protocols and techniques that she used. And if I didn't cite the original article, I wouldn't just be doing myself out of the credit, but I would also be doing her out of the credit. Um, and as well as that, I think when you don't cite yourself, you risk not sort of explaining detail how you actually did the work. Um, I don't know if that explanation helps at all. Um, some of these are quite difficult to explain. I mean, I did struggle myself a little bit with finding really clear reasons as to why you shouldn't self-plagiarize. If you have anything to add, Amanda, you're very, you're very welcome. So I think that makes perfect sense, wanting to give credit to the other people who are on your team that did the work. Yeah. Um, the other thing that where self-plagiarism I know comes into play is if you have, say, like, you have results that have had um, that you've published previously and then republishing those results in yeah. a new context. So um, if you did say a Western blot to show that there's this protein that was available and then reusing that same Western blot in later paper also is falls under self plagiarism. Because yes, you're not lying about who did the work or how it was done or whether or not that result was real, but yeah. you are reusing that same data. It's fine to say that our previous work from, I don't know, 2016 showed that we found this particular protein, but actually showing that data and representing it there is self-plagiarism as well. And I think yeah. that's some of the more common cases of self-plagiarism. Yeah, I mean, I was, yeah, you're right. I wasn't even thinking in that direction, of course, taking results and uh, publishing them again, because you could also say that it's kind of cheating in a way because you're trying mm -hmm. to get two papers with like one set of work results in some way. So it's in that regard, it's cheating. And um, in another regard, it could also be that if you were to take a Western blot and show it, I mean, then the rest of your story is actually founded upon a result that was not really done as part of that study. So in that regard, it wouldn't matter whether you're actually taking the Western blot from your own article or from somebody else's article. Very true. So I mean, try, try, try to, I've told, I've told about self-plagiarism, but I would say try not to think about self-plagiarism as something different from other types of plagiarism. Just try to think about yourself as another scientist. Um, try to sort of see it all as one in some way. <laughs> Um, I don't know if that makes sense. Try to see that your previous work is, it just could be another person's previous work and then treat it the way you would treat that. I see it also for like tractability. Uh, okay. It's easier to like trace uh, work back if there's citations. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's it. I can try to find some more uh, examples and post them in the forum. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. And then um, Sidish, had a question about standard protocols and principles that you you know include in your thesis or in papers um like 
there's only so many, I think we were discussing earlier, there's only so many ways you can describe a cell in the cell membrane, or there's only, because sure. Western blots apparently are my favorite thing to talk about today, there's only so many ways you can describe how to run an SDS page. True. So how do you, I don't want to say get around plagiarizing, but how do you avoid plagiarizing in those situations? I mean, using citations, uh, okay. reference textbooks, that would be my, because yes, you're right. I mean, things like Western blot there, you can only say it in so many ways, but just don't say it in exactly the same way somebody else has said it. I mean, paraphrase it or put in your own words. Um, actually, one thing that I like to do is I like to say things out and record them. Oh, because, that's a great idea. Because then you can just make a transcript of what you've said. And then you're more likely to have actually found a new way of saying it. That's a really great idea. Yeah, that's something that I do. <laughs> no one really knows it, but now a lot of people know it, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I love that idea. Yeah. And then Askin has a couple of questions about um, how do you cite, oh, how do you do citations um, about something that has no name, like maybe it's a website where there's not a person, an author who's writing it, or about websites. Do you have a good resource where we can point people to about how to, like how do you cite different things? Because you went over how to cite things from journal articles, but. Yeah, I kind of focused on that because mm -hmm. I'm thinking mainly about research, so I would, so, for example, um, there are websites that, um, now I'm thinking again in research, like websites that um, are used for like bioinformatic analysis or <laughs> primary design yes. or something like that. Often those websites have actually been published as an article and, and often the people who've created the resource, created the website, will tell you on their website how they want you to cite them. Um, so, for example, BLAST and CBI BLAST, they're actually they're actually references. They tell you how to cite Primer 3 is another one. They also tell you how to cite some of the conserved domain finder programs for proteins. They tell you how to cite, and I would say if you're if you're in doubt, just get in contact with people behind the website. Um, oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. I hope that helps, Askin. And then Sudish says thank you. Yeah. And now um we have a question from Hani about other people using your work. So like if you write something in collaboration with another lab or you do um, produce a figure for another lab, how can that other lab avoid plagiarizing you? Um, so if something that has not been published before, then I would yes. say, um, well, if it's for a publication, I would say that your name should be on it. Okay. Uh, if it's for a grant application, think that that's okay, but perhaps to include an acknowledgement, um, you know, it's okay to include mm -hmm. an acknowledgement to say that this person created the figure. Um, you often see at the end of uh, articles that people are acknowledged for various things where they may not have made the list of authors. Um, that would be my advice. Okay, that sounds great. Yeah, and that makes sense to me. So, I think we have time for maybe one more question. So. Um, this is from Zay again. I'm sorry if I mispronounced your name, but they're asking about, you were talking about combining bits and pieces from other sources, mm -hmm. and that is plagiarism, obviously, but what if you cite those sources, but 
then you just kind of have this copy and paste of different people's yeah. words together. And that's, yeah feels wrong to me. Like my gut says that feels wrong. Yeah. What's what's wrong about that is not the fact that you've missed and matched from other sources. What's wrong is the fact that you're using sentences from other sources. Mm -hmm. uh, the point about the mix and match was just to just to say that this is this is one type of plagiarism that um universities are very aware of and also that many of the plagiarism checkers have been uh, programmed to find. So it's it's um I mean it's it's no worse than copying sentences uh, from an article. The, the mixing and matching together is not what makes it bad. It's just, a, it's a trap to fall into if you're under time pressure mm -hmm. or you've been left with an assignment that you're really not that interested in. Um, and for whatever reason, you're not gonna do all the reading. You just, you could be tempted to put things together and then in that way, it feels like it's your own creation. But um, yeah, you could then, yeah. Okay, now we're getting into the nitty gritty, but if you paraphrase and reword the bits that you mix and match together uh, and cite those parts, I guess nobody could really call you out for plagiarism, but somebody could call you out for lack of originality. So then it might turn into the aggregator in the example. Yes, and that seems almost just for academia, not being original, that seems just as bad. Exactly, yeah. So, and this might be a good place where you're, or a good situation where your trick about talking at, recording yourself where you're talking out loud would be yeah. very nice. Yeah, and I mean, this is not now just related to plagiarism, but this is something that I actually do a lot anyway. <laughs> I like to talk, first of all, I think you know that, Amanda. But um, <laughs> often when I'm, when I'm actually struggling to word something, like writing it down, I often say it out and record it. Not just because I want to avoid plagiarizing, but just in general. So I mm -hmm. think it's a, it's a good it's a good tip. I like that. Yeah. Well, with that, that brings us to the end of the seminar. Okay. So thank you again, Karen, for a very illuminating presentation and a great discussion. And before we sign off, I know that we have a number of guests who are not members of the academy, but are taking the chance to peek into this webinar to see what it's all about. And I really hope that you enjoyed this session. If you are thinking of joining us for the Academy's Structured Mentoring and Education Program, you might like to know that our pre-launch founder member rate of $79 per year, which is down from the normal $149 per year, is still on offer, but only for the next hour or so. Then it disappears forever. So to find out more or to join, visit biosciencemastery.com. And if you look in the chat window of the GoToWebinar panel, you'll see a link there. For those of you who are members, you will get full access to the video recording of the session, along with slides and other supporting materials on the Bioscience Mastery Academy website from tomorrow, or starting tomorrow. And as always in the Academy, we are here to help. So if you have any questions on this topic or any other, now or later, please post them in the forum and the mentoring team, including Karen and I, will be there to help. So we're gonna sign off for now, and we'll be back next week with Karen's second lecture in this module, about reporting negative results in outliers. Check it out on at biosciencemastery.com. Goodbye from all of us at the Bioscience Mastery Academy. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To view the full presentation of this webinar or to browse the Listen In series, please see the episode description for links.
finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Mentors at Your Benchside in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists.